last bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free, and thank you for loving us in a way that is incomprehensible to the human mind, Father. We're just so grateful for all that you've done for us by grace. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free. Thank you for binding us together in faith and love so that we can fellowship this way and break bread, the very bread of life, that is the word of God. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning, and we pray also for those that are still lost. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message, excuse me, this morning's message. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence, part 43. This past week, the Spirit reiterated, uh, shall I say, drove home uh, the sequence, the sequence of events that occurs to setting you free. The sequence of events that occurs to setting you free. And I want you to focus on that word, sequence. So there's a divine sequence that each of us must follow in order to enjoy our freedom. That is the blessings from God. There's a divine sequence that we each must follow to enjoy our freedom. And that is a blessing from God. Do I want you to become all rigid and religious over this sequence? Because I know your flesh is like, woo, finally a little method acting classes that I can cling to. I don't want you to become religious. When you hear the word sequence, a lot of people are like, ooh, your flesh sort of, sort of peaks up and says, ooh, I can cling to that because it's a sequence. It's a to-do list. Uh, I can become religious. I don't want you to do that. But the facts remain. There is a divine sequence in view. Please don't allow your flesh to pervert what I'm saying here. In any case, here's the first step, at least within the scope of our messages as of late, as there are many steps leading up to this. The first step, of course, is this. Is this. Read your Bible. Why? Here's what we've learned. Here's a summary to get us kick-started this morning. <clears throat> the Spirit uses the Word in us to convict us of the truth. There has to be substance, in other words. There has to be something there to convict us with. And that's the Word of God. The Spirit uses the Word in us to convict us of the truth. The truth enables us to discern right from wrong. The Spirit endorses our findings, yes or no, all while guiding us with His power. And the capstone, of course, is we can't lose with the truth. You can't lose with truth. That's the whole point. You want truth to be in your bag, not lies. And the Spirit will endorse whatever it is that our conscience is convicting us of. Whatever we discern in our good conscience, the Spirit will be right there saying yes or no. Yes for this, no for that. 
we cannot lose with truth. It really gives the spirit what he needs to work with in our souls. I think this is something that the spirit gives some of us more of a dose of than others, so to speak, even at a very young age. People understand. You all right, Michelle? People understand. At an early, some people understand at a very early age uh, this whole idea that the Spirit's getting at. And I'm speaking of what I like to think of as integrity. Integrity. The point on the board is about integrity. So I want you to concentrate this morning. And here's the, here's the, the question that's going to get your mind's in the right place for the message that's going to be delivered this morning. What do you think the connection is between integrity and freedom? What do you think the connection is between integrity and freedom? That's a huge question with incredible implications. If you've never thought of it before, you really should. Let me give you what the Bible teaches us up here on the board. On the topic of integrity and freedom, without integrity to the truth, there is no freedom. That's right. Without integrity to the truth, there is no freedom. Jesus said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8.32 Lies, a.k.a. also known as anti-truth, are what keep, keep people in bondage. Again, without integrity to the truth, there is no freedom. If we think of all the pain and suffering in this world, most of it, is because people are actively choosing to live in lies. Look around. Why is everybody in so much pain? How can we possibly live in a country like America and have the discord and the, and the, and the complaining and the constant backbiting and the wailing and railing against each other? How does that exist in a country like this why? Because people are actively choosing to live in lies. And there's no freedom in that. The greatest lie, of course, is that Jesus Christ is not Lord and Savior. Again, the question on the table to refresh your mind, what do you think the connection is between integrity and freedom? Well, the short definition for integrity is abiding in what you hold to be true. Let's just cling to that for a little bit. If you think about, well, what is integrity? It's a generic term. It's a generic term. It means, essentially, abiding in what you hold to be true. In other words, you have integrity to something. I believe this to be true. Therefore, this is right and this is wrong based on what I believe to be true. And I have integrity to that thing. Okay? This is why 
generically speaking, a person can have integrity to something they believe is true, but is actually a lie. A perfect example, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. Homosexuality is not a sin. I just saw on a, 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 a video yesterday that a guy said, I'm a Christian, but I don't have any problem with homosexuality. And I said, well, there's a person who has integrity to something they believe, but it's a lie. That's the point. So by applying this simple definition of integrity to the Bible, we conclude that integrity in the spiritual life is precisely, precisely as Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, precisely as Jesus laid it out up here on the board, John 8, 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, in other words, have integrity to truth, if you abide in my word, in other words, if you believe it, if you hold it to be true, if you have integrity to the truth, if you do that thing, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's your connective tissue. It's all wrapped up there with one or two verses uh, quoting Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If you abide in my word, if you have integrity of truth, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's your connective tissue between integrity and freedom. You see, the secret to integrity, and therefore freedom, is in abiding in the truth. You have the option to do so, or do as uh, many others do each and every day of their lives. The option exists, which is to abide in lies. You have that option. But as the Spirit just pointed out, the result is the fruit of unrighteousness, the act of not being right, in other words, that is bondage, which is the very opposite of freedom. If you choose to live in lies, you sacrifice, you um, sacrifice your freedom because you go right back to bondage. So again, the quote, secret to integrity and therefore freedom is an abiding in the truth. Any deductive thinking implies that you must have the truth in the first place, right? If you're going to have integrity to something, then that something has to be present, correct? There you go. So here's the second big point. The first one was Socratic. It got you to a certain place. Here's the second point, and here's a statement that the Spirit wants to work on this morning. The genius of Satan is this. He's shifted the idea of integrity, from integrity to truth, to integrity to feelings. He has shifted the idea of integrity to truth, abiding in the truth, like Jesus just said, having the Word of God be the base of operations, if you would, to integrity to feelings, where the base of operations is now how you feel about stuff. 
And as I've taught you many times in the past, you might even have a feeling about something holy. But if your attention, if you worship and serve those feelings, you've missed it. You go right back into bondage. Because there's a lot of times where we don't necessarily like what the Word has to say about us. And we become miserable because we're all upset about our feelings being hurt. The thing that we worship is being crushed and smashed down and brought low because the Lord in His sanctification is trying to get us back to the truth that sets us free. It never says in the Bible that our feelings set us free. Is that fair? No, it doesn't. It says the truth will set you free. Sometimes that's the best way to get through something difficult. If you're having a difficult time right now over something, focus on the unadulterated Word of God. Go back to your roots. Stay there. Spend time there. Work it out there. So concentrate. Maybe one of the greatest infiltrations in the church nowadays is this very issue, this supplanting of integrity. Let me articulate it as clearly as possible. I'm not saying, by the way, that everyone lacks integrity. Some do and some don't. Some have no integrity to anything. (laughs) And I would say they fall into this category, which is just tragedy. I don't care if you're talking in any sense of the word. It's just tragic. If you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. That seems to be America nowadays. Or America. America? How do you say it? Todd, how do you say it? You stand for nothing, you fall for anything. However, for those who do abide in integrity, there must be an object, a body of knowledge, let's put it that way, that this integrity rests upon. There has to be a a base of operations for integrity to function. In other words, you don't just have integrity. You just can't stake a claim to it. Integrity is always directed at something. So we might say grammatically we have integrity to something. We have integrity to this system of thinking that's based on, in our case, hopefully, the Word of God. The substance, what we, what we dine on, right? The thing that, that energizes us and nourishes us. That's the Word of God. Our integrity is should be based on that. We should have integrity to that. So here's an analogy to help drive this home. Two siblings play organized hockey. One day they're discussing what some call, you know, dirty play. Hockey's pretty gruesome sometimes. A lot of, a lot of um, you know, scuffling in the, <laughs> on the boards. Uh, so the, the two kids are talking about dirty play in hockey. The first sibling says, well, since it's never called as a penalty, I use my hockey stick to hook my, my opposition right above the glove line. And if you've ever had that happen to you, it hurts. You can feel it right here. There's, a, there's, a, there's not, much protect, not much meat there. It's your bone right there. If you take a hockey stick, it kills. So the first one says, ah, it's never called so... I take my hockey stick 
to my opposition right above the glove line where it hurts the most. The second sibling says, that's wrong. What's that got to do with playing the game? I never intentionally try to injure someone, even if it's not in the rule book. Each sibling has integrity to a system of belief. One says, well, if it's legal, it's moral. And I'm sure there are a few of these folks in big business or on Wall Street. The other says, well, it seems morally wrong to dismiss the spirit of the law in order to get ahead. Again, both have integrity, and in their own eyes, neither is wrong. What's the difference? Truth. The truth of the matter. There's always only one truth, you understand? And God is the perfect judge. I'll let you be the judge on which sibling in our story you think is right and which is wrong. The point of this analogy is that integrity isn't necessarily the issue. They both had it. Even mobsters, if you think about it, have integrity, and they kill people. In fact, fact, lots of people have integrity. The issue is integrity to what? Integrity to what? It's the substance of your integrity that matters most. So if we think about that sequence from the beginning of class, that divine sequence, there's a step before integrity that makes integrity righteous. There's a step before integrity that makes integrity righteous. A person must have something for their integrity to point at, but that's only half the problem. That's up here, right? If they don't have it, you fall for anything. The object of their integrity must be what we find in the Word of God. That's our focus. A lot of people that say, I'm a good person, based on what? I have integrity. I'm a good person. Based on what? Your integrity to what? Your feelings? You feel like God should be this way, therefore? You feel like God, you know, should not rail against homosexuality, therefore? You feel like, you pick your your sin. You feel like that's not wrong? Integrity to what? All right, this brings us back to the instigating point up here on the board. The substance of integrity. The genius of Satan is this. He's shifted the idea of integrity from integrity to truth to integrity to feelings. The prior leads to freedom, the latter, bondage. We worship and serve the Lord. We don't worship and serve what we feel about the Lord. We start here, and this might happen. We might have certain good emotions, godly emotions, about what it is, what happens when we abide in the truth. But we never start here with emotions and our feelings and then try to superimpose it on the truth. 
We don't get to define God by our feelings. And if you look around in most Christian circles, that is exactly what happens. So here's a challenge for you. I did it myself, just so you know. Do a cursory search on Google for Christian beliefs, or, or even narrow it down. Type in encouraging Christian ministries. Encouraging Christian ministries. If you investigate what you find, and I'm saying on average, the top hits even, and then measure it against the unadulterated Word of God, here's what you will discover. Contemporary Christian, Christianity encouragement. This is what you'll find. Stuff like this. Focus on feelings rather than truth. Let me get you spun up. Let me, let me, let me, let me try to make my service relevant to your flesh. Focus on feelings. In other words, promote the idea of worshiping and serving feelings rather than truth. Read commentaries and devotionals rather than the Bible. Take someone else's word for it, in other words. Encourage fleshly desires rather than kill them. Fleshly desires need to be on the chopping block. Dead. Killed. This is supposed to be encouraging. People feel encouraged, right? They go to some church, it's all hoopla, you know, it's all the rock and roll and the, you know, the seven good habits of Stephen Covey and all this other garbage and it's, you know, how you can be a better you. That's what usually the women preachers are saying now. How to become a better you, how to be in touch with yourself and empowering women and all this other BS. And it's all just a... To, to feel good, right? It's all about spinning up and working on people's emotions, their fleshly desires, rather than killing them on the spot. Align with American avarice, greed, in other words. Sloth. You don't have to do anything. You can be a lazy learner. Just come here, eat the quiche, and go home. <laughs> right? In idolatry, you're the best person I know. Or no, better yet, how about you guys putting me up on a pedestal? How about, Todd, can we do this? Can we raise this a few feet so my head's like up there? That's hardly the problem, is it? The problem is what's actually taught and what's promoted behind these so-called encouraging Christian ministries why are these Christian ministries, why are these Christian ministries multi-multi-millionaires? What is wrong with that picture? And why, why do all these people love them? You have to think. Because they're worshiping and serving feelings. Rather than truth. And then, of course, the kicker, promote a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. Ever heard someone say, and this has happened to me several times. I've heard this over the years. Ever heard someone say after one trip to a new church, oh, I just love it there. I feel so encouraged. 
And the person saying this was essentially either an unbeliever or a lazy professing believer. Whenever I hear that, I always ask for an explanation. They said, that's really cool, because it could actually be legit. Could be this person's seriously, legitimately encouraged because they're seeking the truth. You see? They're here, not here. But I always ask for an explanation. And in the vast majority of cases, the person describes all aspects of the church that actually cater to the flesh rather than to God. They'll describe something that caters to the human flesh rather than to God. In essence, their reasoning for boasting about their new church, their new find, is purely emotionalism. And even worse, that it caters to fleshly desires. It's the greatest ruse of all to have a so-called Christian pastor encourage the human flesh. It's a win-win for Satan and the flesh. It's a win-win for Satan and the flesh. And this so-called pastor often reaps the benefits of money, prestige, etc. And the list goes on and on. It's just a sales pitch. It's economics 101, where creature credit is the economy. I've actually had someone say to me, I prefer to celebrate Jesus on Sundays rather than learn about him, given the option. I prefer to celebrate Jesus on Sundays rather than learn about him. Well, since Jesus is the word and such a person apparently lacks the word and therefore the truth, what, pray tell, are they celebrating? You, in other words, you want to skip the truth and get to the emotionalism. Do you see what just happened? I'd rather skip this part and enjoy this part. I don't want the truth. And in the background, I don't know what they're saying when the truth sets them free. I don't want this thing. I want this thing. Jesus is still in the equation, isn't he? I mean, his name's tossed around. It's Christianity proper. It's a church. There's a pulpit. There's music. It's all there. All the makings are there. But the reality is the person's looking for an emotional attachment to the truth rather than the actual truth itself. Hmm. So what are they celebrating? You see, the point the Spirit's making here is simple, up here on the board. The substance of integrity, again, the genius of Satan is this. He shifted the idea of integrity from integrity to truth to integrity to feelings. The prior leads to freedom, the latter bondage. Remember all the good work we did on the music ministry or music worship a few months back? Remember that? Some of you are like, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't really like that. Hopefully since then you've gotten the gist of it. We did a lot of work on music worship. And remember that the key, it wasn't that Christian music is inherently bad. That wasn't the point at all. It was that, biblically speaking, it is supposed to be a reflective form of worship. 
the Bible talks about music, singing hymns and songs and things that are encouraging. It's supposed to be a reflective form of worship. Worship. That's the key. Not merely some emotional or fleshly celebration of our feelings. And you can see how that would align. The key takeaway from those messages was, and I'm pulling the following principle from multiple messages up here on the board. Some of you might even remember this. I pulled this from a previous message. Feelings versus truth. People feel a lot of things that are, quote, right, even as it pertains to the things of God. However, many so-called Christians today have feelings void of biblical training. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, Romans 10, 17. In the absence of divine knowledge, their conscience is a slave to false data. In other words, the doctrines of demons. Does that sound like freedom or bondage? What's the substance? What is their integrity to? They have a right and wrong. They're abiding in something. But what happens when the substance, when the base of operations is wrong? The outcome's wrong. And when the outcome's unright or unrighteous, the fruit of unrighteousness is misery, bondage, all the things that righteousness are not. First and foremost, freedom, peace, contentment, love, all the blessings from God. Feelings versus truth. A lot of popular churches nowadays spend their time, now listen, a lot of popular churches nowadays spend their time celebrating, celebrating being a Christian. Do you understand what I just said? They're celebrating being a Christian. There's a subtle difference here that must be identified by all of you. We aren't called to celebrate the feeling of belonging. That's how cults form. We aren't called to celebrate the feeling of belonging. That's how cults are formed. I've had several people in here tell me to my face, you know, new people. They're not here anymore, by the way. I want to be a member. I want to be a member. I want to be. Six months, they'll make it here. You know, they're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm waiting. It's going to take you a year before you you can become a member here. It's going to take a while because you've got to prove to me, the shepherd who's protecting the rest of you, that you really want to be a member, that you really are a member, and you're acting as a member, and you're, you know, you're showing up, and you support, and all this kind of stuff. As soon as they get membership, they disappear. What the? What was that all about? See, they were more interested in having a sense of belonging than actually being a part of a congregation, being a part of a family. That's... It's mind-blowing, but that's what happens when people celebrate the feeling of belonging, when they come to a church and they just, they want to belong. Because, let's just face it, typically, something's gone awry out there. The world has turned their back on them temporarily. So they escape to a church, and they know that churches are typically inviting. And so they find some level of belonging here, and they, you know, they lick their wounds, 
And then as soon as something better comes up out there, they're gone. That's the result of worshiping and serving feelings. That's a fleshly notion, you see. Even when it comes to a church. We are called, contrarily, to celebrate the word of God, the word of truth, that is Christ himself. That is our motivation. That's what we are called to celebrate, the truth. Not how we feel about any of the truth even, the truth itself. We cannot shift the focus from Jesus to our membership. The flesh loves to belong just as a modern psychologist who spend all their time trying to find unbelievers' way to fit in. The flesh loves to fit in. But that's not what this is about. This is about knowing the truth, because Jesus said it very plainly. He didn't say fitting in or being a member of a church will set you free. He said the truth will set you free. Amen? Yeah, the truth will set you free. Not how you even feel about the truth, because let's face it, sometimes we open our Bible like, oh, no, that's really convicting. And we're like, I don't know if I like that. Right? It's not about our feelings. It's about what is the actual truth. That's our base of operations. But again, a lot of popular churches nowadays spend their time celebrating being a Christian up here on the board. So again, what are we celebrating? What's being celebrated? Celebration demands a root cause, otherwise it is unfounded emotionalism. How can we supposedly celebrate Jesus if we don't know the word of God, which is him? Wouldn't this be nothing more than celebrating for the sake of celebrating? In other words, to satisfy your emotional desires to, quote, feel good? Yeah, what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating just because we feel good? Or are we celebrating the truth? Whether it's watered-down churches, music, or devotionals, all present or all present dangers to a person's freedom in Christ. Satan has used all of these things and many more to supplant the one truth we need for the sake of our integrity. That is the truth. He supplants the truth with lies. One of the great ones is this is about emotionalism. You go to church to feel like you belong and you celebrate the things that you should actually be focusing on. You celebrate your feelings about the things you should be celebrating. The celebration even is perverted. One last principle from a previous message Again, what are we celebrating? Many Christians have supplanted worshiping God with celebrating their feelings regarding Him. Yes, there's a difference, and it matters. The direction of one's affections make all the difference towards God or versus towards self. The direction of one's affections towards God or towards self. What are we celebrating? Hmm. A person 
whose affections remain towards self will never end up in a church like this, at least not for long. Most people just want their flesh to be soothed. Right? They just want their flesh to be soothed. And sadly, many Christian churches direct their attention to this crowd as they try to increase their membership count. It's just economics 101. If I want more people, all right, let me put it this way. If there's two groups of people in this world, which is true, unbelievers and believers, right? And there's a lot more unbelievers than believers, okay? If this group, this large group, functions with creature credit as the currency, and this one is grace as the currency, if I want more people in my church, which one do I sell to? Which one do I appeal to? Duh. You don't have to be, you, don't have to be, uh, you know, Jack Welch. You know, he's the CEO of GE past. You don't have to be a, a, some CEO to understand who, who to sell to. So what do churches do nowadays? They cater to this group because they're trying to make their churches bigger. They say, it's okay. We're going to cater to people's feelings. We're going to skip the truth, and we're going to sell them feelings about the truth, like that previous example. We're going to get them, we're going to get those people who say, I'd rather celebrate Jesus on Sunday than actually learn about him. We're going to cater to that person. Does that make sense? And that is ugly and grotesque, and it leads people right back to bondage. That is not setting people free, because it's the truth that sets people free, not their feelings about said truth. And in many cases, it's almost this blob of, you know, amorphous, undefined Jesus and undefined doctrines. And they only have a, a, a reasonable idea of what the Bible and the Word of Truth actually says. They just care about the, the feelings about these generalized notions. Their favorite one is, well, God loves everybody. How do you think, since there's no definition to this blob that they supposedly have feelings about, how, how do you think they can, a Christian, so-called Christian, say, I have no problem with homosexuality? Because they don't have the definition from the Word of God on homosexuality. They only have feelings about it. So most people just want their flesh to be soothed. And... Many Christian churches direct their attention to this crowd as they try to increase their membership count. But here, I'm going to get real personal here, and I don't care how you take this. This is the fact of the matter. And I'm speaking biblically, and I'm speaking personally. A true pastor's concern is the flock, a.k.a. believers. That is my primary concern. I'd rather have three believers in here then 300 with three believers. And I'm not saying I don't invite new people who are seeking the truth. That's not the case. Of course we'll give them the gospel. And we pray. I pray, don't you, I pray every, every morning with you. Every time we open up. We're praying for the unbelievers. I want to be able to evangelize them. I want to equip you so you can go out and evangelize them. It's not about that. But honest to goodness, my spiritual gift is about believers. And that means fiercely protecting them. Fiercely 
protecting them. Why, pray tell, would this same man invite damaging individuals into his congregation for the sake of increasing membership? Why would I invite wolves in to the flock and say, can't you guys just get along? It's not a pastor's job to compromise truth to accommodate people uninterested in seeking for it with integrity. A pastor's job is to do what I'm doing right now. Go to 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. 1 Timothy 1, 5. It might have been the longest stretch without any scripture, huh? Is that the first one you're turning to? Wow. 1 Timothy 1.5 A pastor's job is to do what I'm doing right now. This is my job. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 1 Timothy 1.5 This used to be on, remember the old strip, the, uh, the last church we were at? This was in the doorway. This was in the little uh, foyer. You guys remember? You guys are like, I don't remember that. It was. It was all nice. and So the people that came in could see it from the street even. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge is to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A pastor's job, then, is never to appease the flesh. A pastor's job is to see human flesh killed. Why? Because that's, that's the danger in the flock. The new creature is symbiotic, if you would, with God's will. The flesh needs to be killed because that's the great disruptor. Go to Romans 8, verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. Pastor's job is never to appease the flesh. His job is to see human flesh killed. Romans 8, verse 9. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That thing's got to die. That thing has to be put down like a rabid dog, like a bad dog. <laughs> right? We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, or if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. Guess what? You will live. Put to death up here on the board. This is the notion. 
Put to death the deeds of the body. I'm going to say this quite confidently. If your flesh isn't being destroyed during a message, then something's either wrong with... Oh, that should say with the message. Oh, there it is right there. <laughs> Something wrong with the pastor who can't read his own words. <laughs> if your flesh isn't being destroyed during a message, then something's either wrong with the message or you. In other words, if you come to church, right, and your flesh is like, giddy up, this is the best. I get to, I get to go eat some food, you know, sing emotionally these rock songs, and then just, quote, unquote, celebrate my life in membership in this church and my supposed membership in Christ. I just got to sit there and, like, you know, celebrate my feelings. That's not good at all. That's very misleading. That's a lie. We're supposed to worship and serve the truth, not our feelings. So, if your flesh isn't being destroyed during a message, then something's either wrong with the message or you. There should be zero, not a little, zero encouragement for the flesh during a sermon. Some of you are like, yeah, we know. Right? I mean zero. And, it, and if there's ever encouragement, it means you're playing Satan, Hasatan attorney. You're trying to, you know, find some weird loophole where your flesh can live and breathe. You see, see what he said? You know, that doesn't account for all of what I've been doing. Only like half of it. That means the other half is, whoo, stop it. Stop it. There should be zero encouragement for the flesh during a sermon. Why do you think Paul taught Timothy this? Go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul taught Timothy all about this. What it means to be a preacher of integrity. If you know anything about the definition of integrity, integrity means the object is the word. See? Preacher of integrity, integrity to the word. 2 Timothy 4.1. It's not always going to be popular, though. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, yay, and out of season, boo. I don't say that. Like, I mean, I'm being funny, right? But the truth is, be ready in season and out of season. It doesn't matter. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having their, or, but having itching ears. I know yours, if you have the New American Standard, it says something about their ears tickled. But in the ESV, it reads, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. A pastor's job is incredible. And I don't say that it has nothing to do with me. But the job, the spiritual gift is incredible. 
God has given him a special place in the hearts of his sheep. We must honor that privilege, or he must honor, the pastor must honor that privilege with his life. And the sheep must honor this privilege with their own hearts. How do I know that? Let me give you a couple of scriptures. You compare them. Integrity. You understand? Stop. Don't read anymore. Integrity to the truth between two hearts. What brings you and I together this morning? Honest to goodness. That's it. It's not because of my beaming personality. <laughs> this I know. What brings us together this morning? The Word of God. The bread of life. Jesus Christ is our centerpiece. We're all sitting around a table, and Jesus Christ is right in the middle. And we say, behold, the Lamb of God. There He is. He took away the sins of the world. Amen? That's what we're here for. We're celebrating Him. Not even how we feel about Him. We're celebrating Him. Because He might go like this. I know what you've been doing. He does that when you read the Word of God, right? And you get found guilty. You're like, oh no! Integrity, that thing, between two hearts. Yours and mine. That's why you're here. That's why the spiritual gift exists. So that you can be encouraged by my faith. Imitate my faith, right? Remember that? So that you can be encouraged by this faith that you see. That some of you have seen for ten years. That you can be encouraged by that thing. 1 Timothy 1.5 The aim of our charge, we read this earlier, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And, how about Proverbs 23, verse 12? Apply your heart to instruction, and your ear to words of knowledge. I'm instructing you. That's my job. Why? Because I want you to be free. And my heart is good on this, from a pure heart. I don't want you to make something of me. I don't want you to have... You know, it's great if you, if you care about me and you have feelings about me. That's cool. I'm good with that, right? I'd, I'd prefer you like me rather than hate me because then I don't get any mail. I'd rather that. But the truth of the matter is, I'd rather you be head over heels in love with the Lord and the truth that sets you free because it never says that a pastor, no matter how pure his heart is even, sets you free. I don't set you free. The Word does. The truth does. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I don't sanctify you. But my heart is good. And I want to keep that object before us, between us. I want us to both have integrity to that. You see, I'm over here, you're over here. We have integrity to, and we meet here at the same object, which is the truth. That's it. My job is this way, your job is this way. That's 1 Timothy 1.5 and Proverbs 23.12, both sides of the equation where the truth is in the middle. Am I waxing poetic right now or trying to be romantic? Not at all. Not at all. The truth is that you and I are in an intimate relationship, and not in a weird way. I'm not some creepy pastor. We're in an intimate relationship, and that's the way God designed it. 
Because let's face it, to do this thing I just described, you have to be laid bare. You have to approach the throne of grace naked. Don't approach me naked. Throne of grace naked. Put that out there. And I promise not to do the same, all right? We approach the, the, the truth stripped. Stripped. And in, in that is intimacy. And that's the, that's the saddest thing. Whenever I think about modern Christianity today, everybody shows up with a facade. It's just a bunch of avatars. It's what people want other people to think they are because it's about feelings. It's about belonging to a group. It's about, do you know what I'm saying? It's about a, a front. How, how, how is that even, how is that intimate at all? It's not. That's a phony situation. That's a phony relationship. So the truth is that when any pastor and congregation are seeking the truth and integrity to that truth, it's a very intimate relationship. The issue is that the flesh doesn't like the idea of being in a relationship with someone fully intent on imparting truth into a person's soul. Go to Galatians 4.16. Galatians 4, verse 16. The flesh doesn't want this kind of relationship. The flesh, honestly, the flesh would rather have a relationship with my flesh. The flesh would rather have a relationship with my flesh. And just so you know, I've learned the hard way, it's really hard to be anything other than uh, friends at a distance with people in the congregation. Because what happens is, I'm just going to be open. What happens is, as soon as you become friends with someone, that person is looking for ways where our two fleshes can combine. Right? Maybe I slip up and I tell a dirty joke. Right? Now we're, now we're bound at the flesh. Right? We both have sick minds. We had a good laugh. Do you follow what I'm saying? And then, then it just goes one step further. And then, then you know a little bit more about my dirty laundry. And I know a little bit more about yours. And all of a sudden, the flesh, the, our two fleshes come together. And all I can tell you from past experience, that is bad. Nothing good comes from it. Not when this relationship here has to exist. But it's the funniest thing because the sheep tend to initiate that a lot. And anyways, I'm just talking, but just think about that. That that's another way that I've had to learn to step away from you. I can't give you too much of me because eventually my flesh comes out and your flesh is like, ooh, yeah, I can work with that. And the next thing you know, there's something unholy going on. Galatians 4.16. Have I I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I just gave you the truth. Am I your enemy now? This intimacy that I speak of exists only to whatever degree we both choose to focus on the object of our faith. Let me say it again. This intimacy exists only to whatever degree we both choose to focus on the object of our faith. And it's the same object that the Spirit's been pointing to all morning regarding the substance of our integrity. And of course, I'm speaking to the word of truth. 
Let me ask you to reflect on this too, and I'm starting to run out of time because we have communion service this morning. <clears throat> At what times in your life have you had the purest intimacy? I don't mean emotional either. I mean pure. At what times in your life have you had the purest intimacy? If you're honest, it's when your soul grafted to another in Christ. When your soul grafted to another in Christ. And not to make any of you stumble, and I'm almost giggling here because this is maybe where we're going to stop the message, but hey, I don't want to make anyone stumble, but this is the greatest form, your soul being grafted to another in Christ, meeting at the word of truth. This is the greatest form of intercourse we'll ever know on earth. Some of you are like, I don't know, sex is pretty good. You can laugh, so only Todd laughs. Everybody else is like, should I laugh at that? But here's the thing. Don't you see that Satan has perverted intimacy itself? Remember, everything's being supplanted. It's not about the truth. It's about what you feel. Satan loves that paradigm because he can pervert even something like sex or better yet, intimacy. For a believer, sex in the absence of Christ's will is not the kind of intimacy that God will ever bless. That's a fact. Sex is divine or designed for marriage only. God will never bless sex outside of marriage. Not for a believer, anyways. Not for anyone, technically, but I'll say it this way. The greatest form of intimacy between two human beings has nothing to do with sex. That is a fact. It has nothing to do with sex. Jesus, Paul, enough said, they were single men. The greatest form of intimacy between two humans has nothing to do with sex. And if you're confused about this, I suggest you read these three blogs specifically, because I wrote, they're not even that old. Blogs regarding sex, the three pillars of Satan's unholy economy, temple invasion, and the Bible says to run away. Here's the thing. The Bible says a lot more a lot more about the pitfalls of sex than it does about the supposed unparalleled blessings that come with it. Have you ever thought about that? How often does it... Right, you go do your own research. Look for passages that say, hey, sex is the bomb. Keep doing... You know, boom, boom, boom. It's all about sex, sex, sex. See what you find. And then see what you find about sex and the pitfalls of it. What do you think you're going to find? Hmm. If you peel back the onion, what you realize is that it's the world 
It's the world that has put sex upon a pedestal, not God. It's the world that has put sex up on a pedestal, not God. That's why people get married. Oh, the sex is supposedly good. What the hell does that even mean? You mean sex without intimacy, without blessings from God? That's good? I think you might be misled. I think you might have got duped. Ay, ay, ay. That's the world. Watch any commercial. What the heck do you think they're selling? Sex. They selling intimacy? No. They're selling the counterfeit. So I invite you, any of you, to try to disprove what I'm saying here this morning because I'm confident you won't be able to do so. And just as an additional hint, there's no sex in heaven. There's no sex in heaven. Again, point up here on the board, and I've got to pick a spot to close. The greatest form of intimacy between two humans has nothing to do with sex. Why does a pastor like myself even bother to teach such things? Well, we have a reminder in Romans 8.13. We saw this already, right? To put to death the deeds of the body. That's why. If your flesh isn't being destroyed during a message, then something's either wrong with the message or you. There should be zero encouragement for the flesh during a sermon. We, we saw that in 2 Timothy 4. All right, let me just reel this in, and then I'll hand it off to DJ, who's going to lead us in communion service this morning. Our primary course of study. Here's where we begin this morning, up here on the board. And this is the thing, right? This is what he's been saying for years now. Years. Read your Bible. The Spirit uses the Word in us to convict us of the truth. But I feel so close to my girlfriend when I have sex. I, it feels so good. It must be from God. <laughs> uh, but it's not true. It's Chinese food. Half an hour later, you're looking for some more. Because you're never fulfilled. Because sex has never once fulfilled a person. Ever. Intimacy with Christ. Meeting at Christ. Two souls grafted together. That's what fulfills we believers. The Spirit uses the Word in us to convict us of the truth. The Bible enables us to discern right from wrong. The Spirit endorses our findings, yes or no, all while guiding us with His power. We can't lose with truth. Now the thought that spawned the majority of our message this morning was our first point of concentration. I've only got two points left for you. This was it, way at the beginning of class. Try to pull it full circle. What do you think the connection is between integrity and freedom? Integrity two. Read your Bible. You read your Bible, I read mine. You read your Bible, your spouse reads theirs. We meet here. We meet at the truth. We have integrity to truth. And when we meet there, ah, 
freedom. Freedom. Just like the Bible says, just like Jesus said. Imagine that. Was Jesus kind of smart? Yeah, he's really smart. Integrity and freedom. Without integrity to the truth, there is no freedom. That's it. That's it. Jesus said you will know the truth and the, the truth will set you free. That's literally a Bible verse. Lies, a.k.a. the anti-truth, are what keep, keep people in bondage. Amen? Good message, huh? Love it. I love it. Hopefully you're encouraged. Really, honestly, I hope, hopefully you're all encouraged. Go ahead, DJ, you can come up. Uh, ushers, get ready for uh, communion service, please. Can you hear me? Perfect. Thank you, Michael. I want to thank Pastor Collins for the opportunity, and I want to thank the congregation for listening. I want to start with a statement the Spirit and the pastor have been driving home, in my soul at least, hopefully in yours also. Obedience to the Word of God always brings the blessing of God. I want to repeat that. Obedience to the word of God always brings the blessing of God. Nothing else. Only obedience. Also, should we should ask, why do we love the word of God? And what does it require from our life? I think the answer is humility and obedience to it. And this is why we celebrate our Lord's Supper. So I want to highlight some points that stick out in my soul 
about the Lord's Supper and hopefully they'll ring in your soul. First of all, our Lord says to do this in remembrance of me and do this until I return so we should obey. We are to remember Christ's work and his death for our life and his saving work for us upon that cross and we should do this daily not just when we celebrate the Lord's Supper we should do it at that time but we should do this daily we ought to celebrate our union with Christ in regards to the Lord's Supper as a form of worship as meaningful as our prayer life and our worship the Lord's Supper is a solemn event but it's also a celebration we are to fellowship with the other members of the body at this time and we're celebrating at the foot of the cross and we are to be humbled by what we've received this is how we worship him it's at the highest level a celebration of the one true savior of the world we are commanded to worship Christ and to worship him alone. There are no others. We are to examine our own hearts and evaluate our life or we may become weak and even sick and sometimes people are even killed. As we celebrate and participate, it's a proclamation of the cross of Jesus Christ our proclamation to the unbelievers to the world the Lord's Supper anticipates the coming of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom and this makes it a huge symbol of hope this celebration is a blessed event and with all these thoughts that we've just put out there while you're thinking of them while everything's in tow, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Corinthians 11, it states, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of our Lord. Let us eat the bread. <coughs> in the same way, he took the cup also. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Thy Heavenly Father, what a privilege to come before your throne of grace and celebrate this awesome event, the death of your son on the cross and his sacrifice. 
Thank you for giving your son and his life on behalf of us. And he paid the enormous price for our sins. So the humble may repent and accept the invitation of forgiveness of sins and start the walk of sanctification. May we never forget the enormous price that was paid on our behalf. May we never forget that we have been bought with the price. The price was the blood of our Lord Jesus. May we live for him and others as our prototype did 2,000 years ago. Lord, let us remember as we leave here today to bring the good news of the gospel with us out to the lost souls that we come across in life. And may we give the light that you have supplied through grace and give the truth that is needed so the individual can have the Holy Spirit accomplish the work that needs to be done in their soul. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us on a continual basis. We pray all of this through your Son's precious name and through the power of your Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>